I'm Aaron Armstrong. I am Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch suggests you do not catch a falling star and put it nowhere near your pocket. Yeah, what about, how do you feel about hiding your light under a bushel? No! <laughs> Gotta let it shine. I, I um, what, what's your light, actually? <laughs> yeah, I know, I need to know more see. about your light situation. I mean, uh, I, I wish Jeffrey Dahmer had hu- hid his light under a bushel. You think so? Yeah, I think he should have uh, stayed, uh, I don't know, failing factory job. I mean, as I understand it, God loves everyone equally, including Jeffrey Dahmer, and he wants him, you know, he, if if Dahmer, all those guys, like Ted Kaczynski, mm-hmm. God blessed him with the ability to make some very good machine craft. I mean, are you saying he's supposed to not share that with the world? He shared it in the world the way that God wanted him to. It was a special talent, yeah. Um, I would say that the implication is that if your special talent is, per se, writing cryptic messages to the San Francisco Chronicle, um, <laughs> and then becoming a regular on Full House to hide your identity, I would yeah. say mm-hmm. the Zodiac Killer should have hid his light under a bushel. I Look, all I'm saying is God don't make no mistakes. <laughs> That's what I would say. God gave me a talent. <laughs> Please read my cipher. <laughs> ba 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 ba. God spoke to me through the code, and he said, "I want you to be my voice, Steve uh. on Full House." <laughs> Noted Zodiac Killer Steve on Full House. Uh, that's a callback. Were you like writing down references in your? Did you listen to like an old episode? Like I gotta re. I gotta repurpose Steve from Full House as the Zodiac Killer. We haven't said it in a while. We always think it. Mm-hmm. I'm always yeah. thinking it. <laughs> I'm never not thinking Steve from Full House is the Zodiac Killer. We're, we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of a month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're on our third week of Spring Forward, Love, Craft, our April look at some cosmic horror Movies that we wanted to cover. We did There's Something in the Dirt, or just Something in the Dirt. There was Something in the Dirt when we covered it. The mm-hmm. movie itself is just Something in the Dirt. We did... We wanted to get dirty. Yeah, want to get... Dirty. Dirty. Uh, yeah, we did another movie last week. We did The Empty Man. Empty Man, that's right. I knew. Just wanted to... Not, not <laughs> been a couple weeks since we've recorded, and my brain wasn't getting there quick enough. And now... We're taking a little bit of a, not a detour, we're definitely hitting the same theme, some cosmic horror. We're we're covering the complete uh, David Pryor filmography with this one. Yeah. But we're doing three episodes from 2022's Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, his anthology horror... show that was on Netflix it was has not been renewed for a second season yet where he 
is the executive producer, does the intros for each episode. And I'm going to go out on a limb. I know it's only eight episodes, Peter. I would say maybe the best anthology horror show of all time so far. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Percentage-wise, yes. Yeah, I mean, percentage-wise, yeah, not by quantity of episodes. But uh, it does – what it feels like to me as I was re-watching a few of the episodes that we're going to cover today, it really did remind me of like – what Masters of Horror set out to be with a much better budgets, better special effects, and directors who I think the thing about Masters of Horror is they were taking directors who, in a lot of cases, were near the uh, later a- end of their career and sometimes not all that relevant anymore in the in the like horror filmmaking landscape. Doesn't mean they didn't make great movies, obviously, like John Carpenter or Joe Dante or Toby Hooper, but like. I don't feel like I'm being insulting to their legacy by saying, like, all of those people's peak was not 2005, 2006 era. Like, this was most of those people who did that show hadn't had, like, a big hit in five to ten years, at you know, generously. And so the idea of that show is obviously to bring on these these kind of um, uh, masters of horror. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to describe them and let them, you know, use some of uh, Showtime, Showtime's budget, I believe. And mm-hmm. um, and make uh, one-hour horror movies. And this one feels kind of like that same uh, philosophy, except it's taking, like, relatively newer, exciting indie directors, letting one of the best directors, I would say, of the last 20 years shepherd a, like, creation. And also leans more towards, uh, because Del Toro is very... Lovecraftian inspired leans very heavily towards, if not direct Lovecraft adaptations, but uh, Lovecraftian themes almost throughout the entire show. Uh, yeah, they're all kind of weird tales, whether yeah. or not um, they fall into cosmic horror. Almost all of them have minus two. Almost all of them have um, some element of a. Lovecraft cult in the background. Yeah. We've selected the three that actually I would consider are cosmic horror and I think are the ones that are worth discussing. Hilariously yeah. enough, they they have an episode in this series that's an adaptation of uh, Dreams in the Witch House. Yeah. Which we covered. Yeah. Yeah, we covered the Masters of Horror, Horror episode. Yep. The Masters of Horror version, which I actually think is like, you know, it's not a perfect adaptation, but it's actually like, I think so as it's good pretty as you good. Get yeah. A, in an hour long TV special. Yeah. Um, and the the version that's in um, the Netflix the, the Netflix show Cabinet of Curiosities, I believe, has almost no hint of cosmic horror in it. Um and leans away from that, and is actually not very good. So we kind of excised it from the list, even though it's technically a direct Lovecraft adaptation. Yeah, well, so I haven't seen two of the episodes. I watched six during last Booktober. I have not seen uh, Dreams in a Witch House, mainly because it was one of the longer ones, and you and Ryan, our buddy, um, were like, it's not very good. (laughs) And which is too bad because I really obviously I like the director quite a bit. That was the Jennifer Kent directed one, right? No, she did the murmuring. Oh, that's the other one I haven't seen. Okay, no. so I haven't seen the murmuring yet. That's the Jennifer Kent. Who direct someone who I really like directed Dreams at a Witch House, though. Um, I forget what she's done, but she did I know she's famous for doing the Twilight movie. That's who did mm-hmm. Dreams in a Witch House? 
Catherine Hardwick, who directed... Oh, she movie. did, like, 13. Okay, so maybe I'm not the biggest fan of her. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, I so for some I, reason, I, I, I got... I thought she had done the Jennifer Kent. I thought... I was, I was disappointed to hear that it was not so good, because obviously I really like... Um, I like Jennifer Kent quite a lot. I like The Nightingale and obviously The Babadook. Um, but but yeah, I, I, I haven't seen, I actually haven't seen The Murmuring um, for trigger reasons. I will yeah. eventually get to it. Yeah. Um, I was not in a particular mood last October to watch a story that involves miscarriages. Um, yeah. So it's maybe a, steer tough content under any circumstances. Uh, yeah. yeah. Matches Jennifer Kent's t- type of like taboos that she a lot of times addresses yes. in her horror stuff. So yes. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, tonight, Aaron, I'm really glad that we could be here to talk about this. Uh, uh, somebody said, hey, Pete, you want to go, you want to go bowling? You want to go throw some balls? And I said, I can't, I can't. I got prior commitments. Um, yeah, you had Mark Pryor. David Pryor. <laughs> I think I did that last week. Mark Pryor, great pitcher for the Cubs. Has not, as far as I know, has not directed even one good Lovecraftian uh, cosmic horror uh, adaptation, not yeah, one. But Sa- but Sammy Sosa Cronenberg has done a lot of good. Oh, he's done a. I mean, he was juiced. <laughs> <laughs> he's juiced. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know what I do when I when I really want the juice, I take the cork out. He put the cork in when he got yeah. juiced. These uh, these movies are so are so good. They make me get Carrie Wood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Why don't they fire Stephen A. Smith and give us both his job and split the salary down the middle? I'll take it. I don't have a lot going on. <laughs> you want to get on TV and be like, what are the best five best basketball teams operating right now? And do that every day. Yeah. Uh, uh, share my image JPEG file. <laughs> you just got to get, get up there and be like, the energy in the Staples Center is huge today. <laughs> have you ever seen anything like this? <laughs> I want to watch movies like that where you don't – like you don't do Mystery Science Theater 3000. You're just like, whoa, <laughs> that's going to leave a mark. <laughs> you just want to be – so wait, you, instead of being – doing a Stephen I want to be the, Smith I want to be, kind of thing, I want to be the Flavor do, Flav of movies. <laughs> you're going to become be Flavor Flav if he did the announcements for pod racing. Yep. That's what I – the whole movie. Everything excites me. That lady sure <laughs> is smiling. <laughs> That's that's me as Stephen A. Smith being an announcer for movies when watching the the, the, the motion picture Smile. Yeah, <laughs> it's the only movie. It's the first movie that featured smiles. All all the oh, movies yeah. were frowns. Even yeah. like even like Buster Keaton, famous person who makes you laugh. You may notice he never smiles in his movies because smiles. They didn't know they could do that on the big screen. They didn't know they could do it for a long time, and then for a long time they were like, "People, people are happy. They're having a good time. No. They don't want to see that at, at when they pay money to go out to the cinema. They want to see someone who's having a real fucking bad yeah. day." They're like, "Make every movie like the piano. <laughs> <laughs> this is no smiles. Lots of pianos, or at least one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know this fun fact about the piano. Just the one. It's just the one. <laughs> it's not called the piano." Um, it would be cool if, um, it'd be cool if they made a sequel and called it Pianos and in the pitch meeting, you know where I'm going, right? <laughs> I'm doing the motion. Not good for a podcast. Put a money sign instead of an S. I think about um, that for every movie I watch now. Uh, 
I was showing my daughter arachnophobia. <laughs> I was like, if they ever do that sequel, it should really be called arachnophobias with the little <laughs> dollar sign at the end. Oh, the best, the best pot. Hopefully that story is true. I don't know. I don't know if it's ever been fully confirmed. I feel like it's a, it's a pitch room legend, but I hope it's true. Yeah. Um, I, though I feel like if anybody, if anybody would just be like, that story's fucking fake, it'd be James Cameron walking. Yeah. Be like, James Cameron would walk in and be like, this, that story was bullshit. I know you guys are like having fun or whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> I actually spent five hours walking through a very intricate experience. Uh, how dare walk- you say, how dare you say that I uh, just wrote a dollar sign? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but what are we coming? So we're coming three movies or three of the short films. Uh, they are. They're. I. They. they they're short like films. Short yeah. films. They do not feel like television at all. They are in a very good way. They feel uh, um, almost of a piece with. Uh, in certain cases, Masters Guillermo's film work, but like the director's film work, like they look yeah. professional and expensive. They do not have that Netflix sort of flatness that yeah. a lot of productions have. Guillermo kind of got to do what he wanted here in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it also like it's you can see why it'd be enticing for the directors, right? Like they are getting to do a movie for likely without much uh, studio notes. I don't know how much notes Netflix gives anywhere compared to anyway compared to like. Uh, you know, some of these where some of these shows existed prior to streaming services, they get to work with Del Toro. And yeah, actually they... Netflix basically gives no notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but on, on top of that, they clearly get to do these adaptations of they're not all adaptations, but they get to do movies or ideas that they had that clearly won't work as movies. Like whether it's the autopsy, whether it's the viewing, I'm not saying you couldn't make these into longer movies but they are like solid one at one to two act films yes. and like trying to insert a different like where uh twist that could go would definitely change what you're seeing and it wouldn't be as good and when i see something like the autopsy uh that is like perfect it is so goddamn good and you go well how how would you have added a half hour to that and it only would have been diminishing returns or diminishing the quality of the movie and what's funny is we get to pickman's model sorry to interrupt but we no get to pickman's model i reread the short story pickman's model as yep. well for this um which i i i like that story it is a very short story it, it is would fun. not work it would no. it would it, it would not work as as is as a story at all it needs more <laughs> meat on the bone i mean that's true of most that's true of most i mean that's why like you know uh there's a there's a podcast we like called Unfilmable that started as Lovecraftian Adaptions because, yeah, like, what would be that as a movie, as a straight adaptation? Ten minutes of someone being like, here's a picture, here's a picture of this one spooky. <laughs> here's a photograph. And then he's like, I'm driving in my taxi cab home. Like, it's not, it's nothing. The main character of Pikmin's model, he's basically like, I went to World War One. nothing scares me. You know what scares me? The subway system. <laughs> That is that is the character, and instead they build a full a full story around Pikmin. Um, the yeah. autopsy is a amazing Michael Shea short story, um, which I'll talk about. I, I, read, I re- you read that one, so I I never read it. I did read it, and I would say that like um, I actually got a Michael Shea short short story book, so I may try some of the other uh, uh, stories in the collection. The adaptation is such a like oh this does everything this does, but like. 
everything it adds makes it better and having all the line deliveries makes it better and having the actors do it makes it better. It felt superfluous in a way that like it's one to one. It well, it's, I don't think it's one to one. I think it's like the the not the short story. Even though obviously the movie wouldn't exist without the short story, it just feels like a lesser version. Like oh, okay, this this is like a rough sketch of what they perfected with this. You you would never have to read this in my like in my opinion. You should just watch the thing, and that's not which that's not to knock the rare. yeah, which is not to knock the short story for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. Obviously, it's a very good short story. Um. But it's just rare that you see something that went, oh, yeah, this took that idea and made it better in every single way. Yeah. No reason to read that. <laughs> yeah. I And it's also so it's, – it's, it's, we'll get into more of the details, but it's just also so funny, like, that I was, I was rereading it and I was like, oh, yeah, like, beat for beat. Oh, they moved this line instead of being internal. He says it to the sheriff, but it is the exact same line. Like – and yeah. Apparent, and so those stories are those stories are based on um, cosmic horror short stories. One from the original H.P. Lovecraft. One from Michael Shea, who has written a ton in the mythos. Yeah. He has he has at least two collections of of cosmic horror stories. Yeah, I got the autopsy great. and other short stories, and I'm I'm looking forward yeah. to. He also I've read Demiurge, which is great. That's like. Um, it's all purely cosmic horror stories. A lot of yeah. them. Um, and and the thing about the viewing. By Panos, Cosmatos, uh, Cosmatos, <laughs> I blinked at how to pronounce it. Um, and the thing about that too is like one of the things about like Mandy, and I would say even uh, what was his other movie that I didn't like that much? It's not uh, Beneath the Black Rainbow, Beyond yeah, the Black Rainbow, Beyond the Black. I want to say Underneath the Silver Rainbow, but I think that's something different. Um, I un- under under this. Are you no. thinking of that one Zulowski movie that's like I am. under the that's, silver that's moon a, or whatever? Yeah, I think I think I'm combining things. His movies are so good at like doing like like Mandy actually like divides it very specifically where it's almost like here is like three parts. Like he really divides his act structure where it feels like you know the beginning of Mandy, the first thirty minutes of Mandy is like its own movie, and then the next thirty minutes is its own movie, and then like the last thirty minutes is like the revenge goes on goes you know and that's kind of how his movies exist there's a clear separation between his his acts and this doing the way he does the viewing almost lets him do a one-act movie with a, a stinger at the end with what you could have imagined act two if he wanted to make this a two and a half hour movie would become and so like it's it, it's really letting someone who is really good at letting these horror moments stretch and be weird and get weirder and hit these specific things, uh, stretch it for an hour's length and like get sucked into every little bizarre moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, Del Toro didn't direct any of these. Um, I think they're talking, I think they're talking about, he might direct some in season two. Um, well that season two hasn't officially been greenlit yet. I just, I looked it up. It's week. something that, but it's something that basically like this show was a massive hit, and he's talked about <laughs> launch. He's like, "Oh, when we get to season two, I like you. Know, I would like to do. I would like to do a thing." Yeah, and he also so a little bit of background here. Um, this was uh, you could argue that this was basically like a product of uh, Shape of Water being such a big uh, critical and financial hit, um, and that's kind of the arc of Del Toro's career, right? Is like he. He gets a big everybody loves it kind of movie, and then um, the studios give him like a little bit more money, maybe. But like this time, Netflix gave him two pretty 
pretty big dream projects. One is to basically pretend to be Rod Serling. Um, and then the second is his stop motion animation Pinocchio movie. Have you seen um, that yet? Yeah, it's great. Oh, I, I, really I have like not it. yet. I, it's really, it's really, really great. I really like it. Um, he, both of those are expensive, full-fledged projects from him that required a ton of time. This project started in 2018 is when Netflix greenlit it. It was something called 10 After Midnight. I think that it was originally 10 stories and then I got come back. Um, but, uh. I think one of the reasons that he's like the cabinet have... doesn't rotate, Tim. It's only like <laughs> inside I I think maybe one of the reasons that like they haven't started talking seriously about a season two is because I don't know if the show actually took three years to full from production. Like I don't know that much about the production history on it. Netflix is very guarded about that. Yeah, and there's like and there's no they're... notes online. It basically was like it was greenlit in 2018, and the first episodes released in 20. It's like, oh, okay, what happened? I assume COVID did something in there. Yeah, and I'm not saying it would take him three years to do another season, but like maybe the fact that it took years to do this season, maybe he's like, I need to knock out some other work I'm working on. And then we'll bring all those directors back. We'll bring in new blood. I'll start building new relationships. Like, that's my theory. It's purely a theory. Uh, all right. Yeah, so where do you want to start? We're doing three. Let's do, let's, let's, let's go through the chronological order because okay. I think the viewing is the, is the crazy one. So let's end on that. All right, let's do, so we're starting with the, the autopsy. Yeah, uh, the autopsy directed by David Pryor. And now we've um, done a complete filmography as we talked about. He did the, we did the Empty Man. We did, uh, what is it? Uh, twelve hundred AM, AM twelve hundred, AM twelve hundred. Uh, yeah. and now we're doing, and that's it. That's the filmography. Unless we go to his special features, DVD work. I don't. I don't feel. I don't feel good about that. I don't fact. feel good about being done. No, it's. I, I want him to make more movies. I want to be clear. He's been making movies for fifteen years. We just completed his filmography. We're done. If we spent two minutes talking about this, that would be it. That would be the end of his, our discussion of all time for now. Yeah. It's a, it's a fucking bummer. Um, so, yeah. This is my, this is my of, favorite, though. This is my favorite. This, I think, is the best thing that he did. There's a bunch of um, – there's a few episodes of this that I think are, like, amazing little monster stories. Yeah. They're, they're great at what they do, um, but they don't tickle something in me that really makes me uncomfortable or really happy in a way that like this this yeah. does and this so um the way that the the viewing does yeah yeah this is uh you know because the first two are really good but they also were what i expected from an anthology horror movie produced by del toro like this is a this is a four or a three and the rat one um is i would say like three and a half the uh what's the first one called again uh, is it Lot 49? Or Lot 49, yeah. Story. Yep. Which is like, oh, that's a good four-star one. Exciting one to get kicked off. Some cool horror stuff. And then it was – and then The Rats, the number two, was like good. I watched the black and white version, which I've, I've heard is the – I haven't watched the colorized version, but I, I liked it. It was a fun, you know, spooky monster thing. And it, it, it kind of like – this is damning with faint praise – but it kind of was like watching the Creep Show, Creep Show reboot. Like, oh, it's fun to have anthology horror. Like, this is better produced and better directed than normal than a Creep Show or a twi- like. It's 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 good. This is fun. And then I get to the autopsy, and I'm like, oh fuck, this is great. Like, this yeah. is so good. This is one of the best like uh, horror anthology shorts I've ever seen. Period. And like, yeah. maybe that much more excited to get a few more in last Spooktober too, just because of. Um, just because of how wonderful this is and really does hit, you know, we, 
when we talk about cosmic horror, it's that idea of like the things that are out there have a view of humanity or a lack of view of humanity that is terrifying conceptually to us. And so like this story, so many, so many times the cosmic horror or the Lovecraftian horror is really based on, and again, this is taking from, you know, the descriptions of the elder gods and the ideas of these giant, like monstrous things that uh, if they do care about humanity, it's, you know, alien, unknowable purposes and stuff like that. And something about the size and the comparison and the contrast is what leads to terrifying the idea of this, like, un comprehensible giant beast emerging for the sea to watch humanity go crazy is a terrifying concept and something that, you know, kind of goes over and over in cosmic horror. And this is that idea of like a terrifying concept that is very small and infects you on a cellular and microscopic and like, you know, body process level in a way that like, while there's some specifics that are explained in a way that makes it a little more knowable is such a terrifying as a concept that it like it, it hits that Lovecraftian horror in a way that's way more specific to crawling under your skin than like overpowering you with its size and, and yeah. mass. And this is not to compare something like this to something that's uh, a movie I was just thinking about that is an alien invasion movie. Um, that is not cosmic horror, um, but uh, A Quiet Place. Oh, yeah. Um, a Quiet Place is not cosmic horror. Um, and at the end of the movie, it ends with the hero winning, just like with the autopsy. Here it ends with the hero winning. But it ends with the hero winning and is sort of this realization that, like, if we keep pushing forward, we can win this war. We can turn the, turn the tides around and take back our planet. The end of this story is a win- for um human uh, just human autonomy a win for one last guy who on the way out said fuck you to a villain and he got to say fuck you to a villain in a spectacular way without anybody else getting killed but like there could be a million more of these little fucking things like they stopped one of these this is not the last of his kind this is this is just a small little victory yeah they set back um, they set back this this uh, particular race for a particular time. This is the end of you know the, maybe it's it's if you have a happy ending of the thing, it's sort of like that. Like like oh maybe we both die out here. We know that the thing's dead. Everything's you know there's nothing frozen in the ice. Maybe we did kill everything. Well, you, but you're right. The thing you you can at least imagine it's contained. Yeah, because you know the spacecraft it came from where. Where uh, this, you know, it's not contained because there these exist all over the place. Like we, he, the the creature keeps saying we use you as cattle. We, like he refers to himself as a as an as a race of of cosmic beings that are are essentially using um, humanity as their own personal cattle. So you know, it's a it's a victory against this little monster guy, which feels good because he is. Uh, he is a, an asshole. He's a real piece of shit. He's a this guy's real, a little, piece real of fucking stinker. Yeah, he. I mean, he is a stinker. I mean, he's talking about like how exciting it's going to be to come in your body uh, when he takes over you. I mean, he's a he. You are like 
the amount of like fuck this guy energy and a little cosmic parasite that this movie evokes is really good. It's really good. This movie creeps this movie creeps the shit out of me in a way that's like I I don't I don't frequently get scared, but I remember watching this uh in broad daylight. It gave me that tickle at the base of my neck where I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, that's gross. And then I and then I when I rewatched it for this, I made sure to watch it at night fully alone you know windows drawn all that and it works even better the second time like it is yeah it is a very unnerving story so i can take us through the plot yeah really quickly yeah it's a basic two-act structure yeah. uh we start with there's a uh dr winners is a uh a dying um like, uh, uh, he performs autopsies. He, he, he is, uh, essentially like he works for, um, a city government. He comes in and he investigates and, and kind of provides a report for the coroner's office. Um, he is dying of cancer, uh, stomach cancer. Yep. He's speaking with his old friend, uh, who's a sheriff. Um, and the two of them have like a really sweet relationship in the story and in the movie. <clears throat> and, um, they... Uh, the, the sheriff is basically t- discussing how they found a weird fucked up body that like had been drained of blood, like not a drop. And you're kind of walking through this like murder mystery. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually find, they kind of track it down to this guy, Joe Allen mm-hmm. and Joe Allen. Um, well, Eddie Sykes originally, but I'm just going to continue to call him Joe Allen. <laughs> um, Joe Allen, uh, is, um, no, his name is day- Joey, Joe Allen in the book. Yeah, it's Joe Allen in the book, but then at some point, I think it's Joe Joe Allen was hopped from Eddie Sykes's body or something. Oh, yeah, like Eddie okay. Sykes, I think was the previous guy. He was the but, guy they. I think Eddie Sykes is the guy they find in the pit. Yes. Oh, you know what? Yeah, and Eddie Eddie Sykes is also the guy that um, they go into. He goes. Jo- Joe Allen goes into oh, the bar, yeah. and that one guy thinks he's Eddie Sykes. Yeah, There's that's his, that's his, yeah, that's his friend they find. Yeah. The point is, it's a small, it's a small, poor coal mining town. The sheriff is trying to catch this killer. They eventually chase down Joe Allen, and they find this fucked up basketball thing that has lights. It feels like glass. It feels fleshy. Um, Joe Allen notices they have this. He breaks into the cop car, steers, steals the basketball thing, runs into a mine shaft, jumps down there, throws this thing that lights up like a device from Starman or something, and then it. Blows up a big section of the cave, kills a bunch of guys, including him. And so Winters has to come in and perform an autopsy. So he ends up at the ice um, ice company or whatever, because this is a small town. They don't actually have like a proper coroner set up. And it's, yeah. the, it's 1980. Um, and he gets uh, he gets into the bodies and he starts finding weird shit like. This one, he has a tape recorder, which is specific to the uh, mm-hmm. the adaptation, where he's recording yeah. everything that's going on. He starts in, in, in the book. He in the book or the short story, he does all his voiceover narration by talking to his cancer, which reads yes. reads good in the book. But you can understand why that wouldn't read well on, on exactly. Same, I had the same thought last night yeah. um, when I was rereading it. I was like, I'm, I'm. It's one of those things when you're reading a story. It's like someone is. It's like a Stephen King thing. There's a lot yeah. of Stephen King things where you're like. Actually, it's pretty cool that you're having a weird conversation with this tree, but if, when you adapt it into a story, it's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so 
Um, he's, yeah, yeah if, he's he was, if he was if he was on if F Murray Abraham was like looking at his stomach and like this is very weird. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen anything like this in a body cancer. Uh-huh. Like yeah, this doesn't work well. Doesn't like, quite work. Doesn't quite work. Um, yeah, but uh, okay, so um, <laughs> he's punching his own stomach. Um, wake but, up. Uh, <laughs> but in oh, uh, shit, he's, my he's, he's talking to he's talking to you win this one cancer <laughs> yeah. uh, I've contaminated the friend. bodies yes my mischievous friend that's good um, I want to I be able to do an F. Murray Abraham impression I mean that's a good um, were you doing a Luke Roberts as Joe Allen impression <laughs> pretty good I guess I'm getting there um, so he's yes he's recording oh, all of his thoughts out loud he's going through the bodies he's finding some of the bodies are drained of blood and then he finds out that Joe Allen was sandwiched between two bodies that are drained of blood and he says I wonder if inside Joe Allen there's a bunch of fucking blood <laughs> yep <laughs> And then um, he goes. This guy's. To, this guy's. I don't want to take Batman's title away from him, but I would call this man the world's greatest detective. <laughs> He's the world's uh, greatest. Uh, yeah, blood detective. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so blood here, blood he, here, maybe blood <laughs> in middle. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe the blood went to space. Yeah. Um, but he goes, he goes uh, into the the meat locker to go fetch Joe Allen and cut him open. Yeah. And the whole time he's getting heebie-jeebies, he, heebie-jeebies, he's getting he's getting real spooked out. And at this point, Joe Allen gets up and he is a disgusting, failing corpse. He has to open up his mouth because I think it was sewn shut. Yeah. He is he's bloated and distended. And the first thing Joe Allen does is. Through like this blubbering like windpipe kind of thing, he's basically like begging uh, Winters to help him. I'm like, yeah, closer, like help me. And Winters, being this like really great hero, like really like just you immediately like this guy. Yeah, he's like, no, fuck you. Like yeah. something clearly horrible is going on, and I need to figure out what it is. But it's not through helping you. Like, um, and then the the thing flips its tune. And then it realizes it's dealing with a true antagonist, not just another meat sack. And then it starts having a full conversation, a full erudite um, conversation. F. Murray Abraham is a obviously an extraordinarily talented vocalist. Like he can say anything, um, and it and it sounds compelling, right? He's just one of those one of those guys. And his language in the in the book is actually it's it's fairly flowery, and he speaks with with this sort of like panache, um, and he's sort of having this like elegant conversation with this demonic fucking parasite. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, well, and yeah. and well, and also like even though I don't know Luke Roberts from that many things, he's so good here. Like mm-hmm. his his way of like that's why it really so many of the lines are taken directly from the book, and like you could not get better actors to deliver these lines that make you go, I never need to hear this version in my head again. Like just let these two deliver, which is why so many adaptations are so hard because you're like, well, I had a picture for how this sounded in my head that these people on with the changes to the line or the way they're delivered didn't. Uh, didn't meet my expectations and this is just like this is perfect and like the language is so good in the way that the parasite the cosmic entity is like 
brag braggadocious and rubbing in his victories and explaining what he's going to do and the whole way that it's it's just delivered in such a way that you're just like I just want to punch this guy in the fucking face. <laughs> it just makes fucking this dick. guy such a fucking dick. Uh, it <laughs> makes it so good. But that's what he does. He almost immediately kind of knocks F. Murray Abraham out, and then when he wakes up, he is uh, most of himself is uh, tied up and immobile except for one arm with a that has a um, a knife in it to cut himself open. Um, and Joe Allen is taking himself apart and doing all these like surgical precision cuts on a gurney next to him. And that's when he starts kind of describing what actually happened, which is that he essentially is, he is a parasite. He is a cosmic race that has these little circles, cute, adorable spaceships. They fly to earth and they have, there's actually the basketballs from space jam. Yeah. Uh, they have senses only in their larval stage, right? They Their entire body and their entire life cycle is based on, uh, you know, having enough senses to get into a body. And then in their adult version where they grow and kind of uh, absorb space within this, this body, they take over every sense uh, mm-hmm. from sight to being able to, you know, they basically take full control over the body. And again, that's not the the idea of taking full control over a body isn't necessarily like so alien, forgive the pun, in these types of sci-fi or cosmic horror things. But it's the way that he describes all of the processes by which his parasitic body merges and starts to control human bodies like a puppet. And it's like, what a great way that you have a cattle that... Uh, you know, that you have cattle that you are raising to eat, that you actually take control of the cattle in order to experience their life. It's a evolutionary advantage. He keeps going on and on about how we travel light and we just take control of the hosts. And again, he is bragging about what he's going to do, his plan to cut Joe Allen open, to realizing that this this man is uh, going from corpse to corpse and could this is a perfect way for him to feed undetected. And he's bragging about both what a perfect plan he's hatched, how great he is as an evolutionary feat, and how exciting he is kind of rubbing his nose in to take control of his body, where, like I, the joke, like, the amount of food I'm going to eat and the amount of orgasms I plan to have with your body is, like, immeasurably exciting. And, like... Yeah. You know, it's it's so great the way he's giving his villain speech. Like, it's a parasitic organism giving a fucking Batman villain speech, and it's so goddamn good. Yeah, and the orgasm thing is really crucial because it, it it's it, that during that moment he's revealing that he has obviously the biological need of needing to feast, Yeah, right? The other half is he has a biological need to extol terror and experience pleasure in this yep. activity. yep. And to him, they're equally important. So when he was dying, tucked between those corpses, he extended a drug to the bodies using his, like, cilia. Yeah. He extended a drug to their bodies to reawaken their brains just long enough so they could experience every part of the feast before he cut off contact at the end of what must have been immeasurable suffering. Yeah. And he's basically saying to 
Dr. Winters, um, he's basically saying, not only am I going to take over your body, you're not going to be lost. You're actually going to be in, in here with me for quite some time. Yeah. And you're going to be here when I kill your friend. Yeah. As a passenger. Um, which is the part. Yeah. Yes. As, and this is the part that really like made, gave me the shivers. It's like, yes, he's talking about how basically it's like serial killer shit. He's like talking about, he's like, oh man, what I'm going to do. I'm going to come so hard when I eat your friend. Yeah, I know. There's a, there's a really great well, uh, line. Sorry. There's a really great line I remember from this. Um, why? Uh, so Dr. Winters asks, why must your ship be destroyed even at the cost of your host's life? We must not be understood. The livestock must not understand what is devouring them? Yes, doctor. Not at once, but one by one. You will understand what is devouring you. That is essential to my feast. Like, yeah. The whole, it, like, it's... It's so <laughs> creepy because, again, it again that kind of invasion of the body snatchers thing where, like, I think we can all understand, like, hey, we're, we're controlled or we're replaced by some sort of alien parasite or something like that. But the concept of being, like essentially like violated in a way that like i mean honestly like if you're you know uh, if you're using someone's body to experience orgasms against their will like that is the dictionary definition we're not dictionary definition but one definition of rape and it feels like it's that idea of like that all-encompassing like i am taking control of your body so i can make you do things that you will witness but not be able to control and like you know that so much of the scary horror stuff that I that we've experienced, whether it's like a possession or an alien host or a parasite or whatever it else it is, one of the scariest things is always that, like you know, when they when the possession leaves the body at the end of the movie or the TV show, and they ask, "Do you remember anything?" and they're like, "I remember everything," and like you're like, "Oh, that's such a scary concept," and this is like. When that happens in movies, we only see the actions of the character. We say we know that, you know, this body is being controlled by another entity and we see the the entity do weird things that we know our character would normally not do, like, you know, kill friends or rob stuff, whatever's happening in the, in the particular movie. But we don't actually get into their head and realizing, like, what they're doing while they're pushing another consciousness to the side and literally controlling all the body's, uh, you know, senses and um actions and that is something that this through the kind of villain speech that goes on for about 15 minutes you really get a sense of how what a violation it is to have your body fully controlled by someone else while you are a, a silent witness it's such a fantastic analogy for like colonial possession yeah where it lands it it um it lands and may come as a friend and may come as a foe. In this particular case, it landed as like a weird squid thing that hung around Joanne's yeah. bed until he crawled in his mouth when he wasn't wasn't paying attention. It's also um, very creepy to look at, which also help and it like has all these tendrils that attach oh. to all these different things, which makes it so fucking gross too. Yeah, that's uh that's something we didn't really talk about, but like yeah. apparently the one thing that Guillermo del Toro was a uh, micromanaging producer on is monster design. Yeah. And you can, you uh, can it makes you sense. Can tell. Yeah. Even even in the episodes that I'm not like hot on, the monsters look insanely good. Yeah. Um and uh yeah, so after that point though, like a lot of the stuff is basically like the alien comes to you as a friend, is patting you on the back, and then eventually it's colonizing your body, it's colonizing you from the inside. And what we experience is you you really pointed this out well. We're experiencing the internal 
pain and suffering of characters as they're basically being robbed firsthand of everything. They're being yeah. colonized at the internal universe of them is being colonized. And we see these CGI shots of this thing when it actually is getting inside of F. Marie Abraham. Yep. Um, we see the internal universe of this thing trying to take over synaptic control and this like basically alien landscape that exists inside your body. And um, the... And it's that's the the time for F. Murray Abraham to get to talk to this fucked up little thing, and that's one change from the story is that at first he's talking to his cancer, yeah. and then he's talking to a cosmic cancer. Yeah. Um. And, and I think that that's really fascinating that he has this like inner geography, this inner safe space that's being um, colonized by this alien invader. Um. And that is that is that is a cosmic horror concept. If there's if there'd ever been one, is like you will be you will be assimilated for my needs down to the tiniest morsel. Yeah. I can't let a single piece of you remain you when I'm done. Yeah, and it also part of the reason it's so satisfying as a horror short too is that like F. Murray Abraham has a victory in a very satisfying way, and both the novel or both the short story and the movie are like. It is a victory over this creature in the sense that the creature itself is stopped, not a victory over what is clearly happening to the human race as a whole, and not a victory that F. Murray Abraham, Dr. Winter, specifically gets to celebrate. Because essentially, you know, he is, while he is bragging and, and you know, being narcissistic about how wonderful he is, at one point, Dr. Winter's like, are you sure you're not forgetting one thing? Because he's kind of described that as he exits the body, he will have no senses because he doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't, you know, he's not going to know what's going on. And so you find out that uh, Dr. Winter has kind of plotted a plan to use that time where he's transferring into his body to uh, to destroy his body and kill himself in a way that like allows uh, uh, the parasite no re recourse. So he stabs out both of his eyes. He cuts his throat. He stabs his brain. He uh, stabs his ears. Um, and then he we find out at the end he writes blood in blood on himself, which is different, it, even better in the uh, uh, in the in the movie where he's like you know uh, burn the body. <laughs> Um, as yeah. opposed to uh, Alien Inside Me or whatever he writes in the book. It's a little more Yeah, on that's one change that I think yeah. works better yeah. um, in, the, in the... He says, play play the tape. play." No, I think it works better in the movie. Play the tape, burn the body. Uh, mind, mind Parasite, FM Allen and me, cut all till find one 500 GM mass um, nerve fiber. So he's basically saying, like, chop me apart until you find this 1500 milligram thing and instead that's and that's like a cool yeah. like kind of because the story is very intent on yeah. the small details like it is a story that clearly michael shea did research on i'm not saying it, it's a i'm not an i i do i do not perform body preparation in any way Ooh, um but clearly he's getting in the details and i would stop and google stuff like i, I was reading it on my ipad and then i would stop and like with my cell phone and like google stuff on the side because i was like is that really something they do and so it, it makes sense that at the end he wouldn't just say burn me he would be like give all these specific details like look for this fucked up little monster in me he but in the it makes sense in the epic story he would just go for that and play the tape yeah because he because he's talking to him the whole time yeah. so he can hear here, play the tape, burn the body. 
Yeah. Um, and and the, the great little, you're going to say his little thing that he so rain good. melds to him. Go ahead. It's so good. Yeah. So first thing to understand is the reason he doesn't go into shock when he's stabbing his eyes out and, and all that is because uh, the alien has performed some sort of um, anesthetic on him. Yeah. So he's able to do all that without going into shock. So he could really do a good job knocking his ears out, his eyes, and cutting his own throat. And he says to the thing in this internal monologue inside the, the landscape of his, his, his soul, inside of his body, Welcome to your new house. I'm afraid there's been some vandalism. The lights don't work and the plumbing has a very bad leak. There are some other things wrong as well. The neighborhood is perhaps a little too quiet. And you may find it hard to get around very easily. But it's been a lovely home for me for 57 years, and somehow I think you'll stay. Yeah, it's so good. It's great. It's great. And then, yeah, you see him. You don't realize what he was writing at the blood, which is another great reveal that you get on the movie. And then when his cop friend shows up, it says, yeah, play the tape, burn the body. Um, yeah. And yeah, a great, yeah a great little uh, outsmarting the alien parasite in a way that's incredibly satisfying. Well, like you said, it's a Pyrrhic victory. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I, I love that he got to do, David Pryor got to do um, heady, reality-bending, empty man-style, like, uh, um, cosmic horror, where we're questioning what the reality is, and what's a dream, and what's fake, and what came from this dimension, and that kind of version of, of Lovecraft. And this, he got to do fucked up, weird alien invader, a whis- whisperer in darkness, um call a cthulhu kind of thing because remember at the end of call a cthulhu cthulhu um what do they do some sailor hits cthulhu with a fucking boat and then cthulhu is like man that fucking sucked i'm going back underwater and then he put off the apocalypse for a period of time hey you ever hit by a boat peter <laughs> look the whole point is we can't understand their motives but i think in this case we can <laughs> that sucked <laughs> Going back to sleep till people stop hitting me with boats. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just woke up. I just woke up. Yeah, it's great. And I would say that if you're like, uh, I don't like this is not a show that you need to watch in order, even though I think we basically did. If you're like, oh, I'll give it a try. Step in with this. This is the best one. And the viewing's also fantastic. All of them that I've seen are pretty good. But this is, uh, yeah, this is easily the best. All right. Pikmin's model. Pikmin's model. Models. Um, Game twins. <laughs> I understand that the word model. If you're not, you know, um, I, you're gonna be di- you're gonna be disappointed. Yeah, uh, it's not gonna be a ten. I don't think Pikmin's model could start a successful OnlyFans. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean. I'd pay a few bucks just to see what, what, what this model's got going on under the hood. And go irrevocably insane. I think we, we've seen what goes on under the hood. But this is directed by Keith Thomas, who did who did the, the, vigil. the, the vigil. Yeah. Which we, which we both loved quite a bit. And then the remake of Firestarter, which I saw and liked quite not a lot. I <laughs> uh, thought it was terrible. This is in between those two. The vigil uh, is yeah. a... The Vigil is a, a, a like, instant classic, and this is Terrible. just a solid, fun, fucked-up hour of TV. It is a very good adaptation of a very light, even for Lovecraft standards, short story. I reread it. I know you said that you reread it, too. The short story is really a guy 
who's been to World War One sees some paintings and is like, the last painting, he showed me his inspiration for the paintings, and they were these weird creatures, blah, blah, blah. It's like 12, 12 pages of weird creatures. And he's like, he showed me his inspiration. And then, like, he's driving away. I never saw him again because I believe in the inspiration was a picture of these monsters in real life. Ah! Like, again, it's, it's good. Like, you know, if you like that kind of florid, like, Lovecrafty language and he has some good spooky, like, you know, epistle, epistle uh type descriptions of like dear reader i was so terrified of and i, I like I, that as close as as william thurber gets the action is that he's standing outside of the room and then in the other room pickman uh unloads his revolver and then he comes back out of the room and he's like sorry just some rats yeah do you see that dead rat there it's a dead rat. He's like, I guess it was a dead rat. It's like, it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's close as he gets the action. Close he gets to incident. Yeah, it's as close <laughs> he gets to incident directly. He, he, yeah. As far as he knows, this guy just really fucking hates rats. Which is like, you know, the Lovecraftian short stories, that's a very common thing. Like, creepy, 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 creepy. What if it's real? The end. Like, which is fine. That's like, that's like classic... Weird tales, ten-page short stories, uh, and obviously this adaptation is takes basically the main thing, which is, hey, what if there's a guy who is painting these weird, fucked-up paintings, and those they were they were still they were still to life, they were real paintings of real things, and you have a slow discovery of that, and that's basically that's basically what it is, along with Crispin Glover, who gets to play Pikmin, who is a like. It, Crispin Glover's such an odd duck in general. What he decides to do and what he doesn't decide to do is always just insanely bizarre. And there was a time where he... So now that he, like, occasionally shows up and, like, oh, Crispin Glover's in the f- fifth episode of the Netflix horror anthology show? Sure. I mean, he's, he's good yeah. at it. His accent is somewhere between JFK and that little guy in mobster cartoons. He's like, let me at him. You know what he reminds me of? Do you remember uh, Back to the Future Part 3, which Crispin Glover was not in, Mm -hmm. when Michael J. Fox is playing his, like, great-grandfather Seamus McFly? Yeah. It's got a little... hotty hotty (laughs) It's got a little bit of that, like, turned into, like, a little bit of a New York accent, but it's like that. It's the same cadence. He says, my grandmother was a witch. Yeah. (laughs) I I swear to God, you're um, you're my friend. (laughs) <laughs> she was boined at the stick. It's <laughs> uh, really good, uh, but yeah, I mean that's kind of the plot. Like you, he has basically been. Someone say Crispin Glover was bad in this, and then I was, and I watched it, and it was like, what do you want? Every time he talked, I had a great time. Crispin Glover is totally good. Weird. Crispin Glover is good in this. He's a, I mean, he's playing a fucking weirdo. He's playing which someone would, who literally all he sees all day are fucked up little goblin yeah. dudes. Like, yeah, yeah, he's weird. It's Crispin yeah. Glover. He's Crispin. He's Crispin Glover be a little weirdo. That's how they get him. Like, he's like gonna be a little weirdo. He <laughs> says it like that too, and they're like, he's like "Sure, a, dude." In this one, I'm gonna be normal. <laughs> This is normal for me. Oh look, I'm staring at the television. <laughs> oh, look, a commercial. I'm gonna go buy that product. <laughs> is that uh, normal enough for you, Keith <laughs> Thomas? Uh, when I want a bunch of peanut brittle, you know what I do? 
I buy a jar of snakes. You're my density. <laughs> I mean destiny. Um, yeah, so he paints, uh, he paints things. He paints fucked up models. Everyone else is like, it's like, you know, Victorian, like, haughty toddy. Um, oh, I don't, this guy, we're, we're painting beautiful pictures, and this man is po- painting gross stuff. Uh, but our protagonist, what's his name again? Sorry. William Thurber. I finally found a job for myself. I'm not very good at painting or drawing, but I could be the guy that just goes in a room and just, just, uh, shows hog for an hour to a bunch of art students. <laughs> Holding the little pitchfork? Yeah, uh, but yeah, he's, he's holding, holding like this. And the best part about it is, like, you don't gotta be in great shape. No. There's more to draw, baby. They're gonna have to give they're gonna have to give a few extra seconds to the guys to draw yeah. all this majesty. <laughs> so yeah. You have sixty uh minutes. <laughs> I'm gonna need more. You don't make this a two hour you make a super sized class. Um <laughs> the uh Yeah, but he handle but, uh, him with love. His love handles are for you. Just get in there. Go knead the dough, as they say. <laughs> We're baking bread now, baby. It's our class. Um, they, they, yeah. He's like, uh, he feels a jealousy towards Pikmin. Uh, and there's like a competition. He's got a wife and a kid, and he, um, you know, a, a lot of it is just like these are inhuman things. They keep showing the paintings, and the paintings like slightly move, like a pictograph animation type thing where. Um, it's in the the effect is that people are kind of hypnotized by the creatures, um, and also there's this recurring scene that Ferber keeps having about uh, basically a cannibal type dinner that happened with witches uh, that uh, Pikmin has painted that seems to call back to something in his life. Yeah, and I want to talk about the paintings a little bit because yeah. we the, he sees a family portrait and he says. This was my grandmother, Lavinia. Which I think that he was implying that he's, like, maybe related to the Watleys. Like, because Lavinia Watley is in Dumbator. But Lavinia Watley is just, like, a albino broodmare. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say either of those words. Um, I don't think you can say brood. <laughs> sure. Um, but they, uh, she, she was uh, treated like a, an object or whatever in Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if there's much relation there other than it's just a cool old timey name. Um, but uh, his grandmother ran a a like fucked up cannibal cult back mm-hmm. in the day, and this family Linus, L- L- dynasty has given even people that aren't directly involved in the witchcraft access to visions and direct line of sight to the fucked up dredglings of the universe and the fact that on the other side of this veil (laughs) there is something trying to come through and cause chaos in this world pikmin's paintings he's giving everybody uh like a little bit of a view of what's what's going on and they kind of evolve the story a little bit but before we get too far along i want to jump in a detail that i really love so you talked about the paintings they move a little bit it's kind of cool kind of reminds me of darkest dungeon a little bit um yeah yeah that's a that's a good uh yeah so um one thing that i think is really cool is in the story he directly references um 
Gustave Doré and uh, Goya in particular, Goya paintings. And I think Goya is like on, online, not in real life, <laughs> but in online, I think his most pa- uh, famous painting is uh, Saturn Devouring His Sons, which is yeah. like scary. Yeah, it does. Thing. Yeah, it 100% his paintings look like that. They, I think they, I, I tried to get more information on who did the paintings because the art in this is insanely yeah. good. And I, really I, good. I, I looked up. I think it was AI. No, no. Oh, no. The other side of the veil is um, Crypto Bros. Um, But uh, they actually capture that sort of um, where realism was bleeding into Impressionism, this sort of like uh, fucked up uh, blurry scenes of chaos. And Goya captured the Spanish Civil War. Doré would do these beautiful like... Uh, Dory did actually, I think, a story that eventually would could be known as cosmic horror, um, which is uh, he drew illustrations. Or I guess they were etch- etchings that became illustrations later. Whatever. I'm not an arts. I'm not an arts guy. Um, is a uh, uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner. Rhyme yeah. of the ancient mariner is like to me as close as as the lighthouse has to a direct inspiration. Um, it's just about the fucked up nature of the universe and the, the illustrations in it are insane. I have somewhere for you, Aaron, to show you. I meant to grab this earlier. Give me one second. There, hold on. One second. Boop, boop, boop. But yeah, it's a Coleridge poem, and Doré has all these, like, fucked up, really intricate, like, mm-hmm. uh, scenes of, like, just essentially hell visiting the sailor for committing a crime against the... crime against the cosmos. Yeah. And it's got all this like rad like sea sea illustrations to accompany the the poem. Um, and I don't know if they're blending in some like lesser known pieces of art from that era or if they just have an amazing staff of artists. But like the art is genuinely scary and hard to look at in a way that you can't get without spending a lot of I money. Mean, <laughs> that Again, that seems like such a Del Toro thing, right? Like his, yes. his like monster designs. I'm sure some of the designs are probably even like Del Toro sketches back of the napkin that he's like, paint this. Uh, I am Pikmin's model. Please paint this. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's really great, and it, um, it you know there is a lot of like him freaking out because he starts to get kind of um, touched by these visions of this family eating. Ferber does, and uh, he eventually like confronts Pikmin. He's like, "I was a little friend to you." <laughs> I was not your enemy. I was a friend. He's like, he's like, stay away from my family, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Come to my house, see my latest painting. You're going to be so impressed by that. If you don't like it, I'll go away forever. I won't, I won't, and I won't enter the the most recent competition. Uh, we'll be good. We'll be square. <laughs> he says. We'll be square. Uh, so he goes to Pickman's house in his basement and he's showing him these pictures, and the the whole thing is getting more and more intense until all of a sudden there's like a well in the middle. Uh, there's a creature there, and uh, he Ferber ends up shooting him and burning the house down and burning all the paintings. And he's like, "I was a friend to you. You shot me and killed me. He's, you know, nice the whole time." And he's like, and it kind of flashes forward. He's like, you know, we're done. I stopped Pikmin. He clearly had act, and that's kind of like. It's kind of the end of the Lovecraft story, too. Like, 
these monsters were real. He was painting real stuff that was coming to him that he literally had access to. What a creepy situation. I burned it down. Um, And then he goes to his gallery. He is now getting featured in this museum. And as he's taking his wife and his kid through this, someone's like, oh, did you see Pickman's painting? And he's like, what are you talking about Pickman's painting? Like, because obviously we saw him kill him and burn his paintings. And he runs to the end of the hall and he notices that Pickman's newest painting and a bunch of other paintings are hanging up in this gallery. And he is terrified and he tries to get his wife and kid. He sends them home. He says, go home. He like tries to he's like, take down all the paintings, burn them. Don't look at them. Don't look at the paintings. Um, And he finally gets home, only find his wife. Uh, And this is such a great creep. This fucking just a creepy, amazing like Twilight Zone, R-rated Twilight Zone ending. Um, His wife is like talking weird and cutting carrots. And he's, she's like, wait, what's going on with you? And you kind of almost hear like, I I forget, like I was watching carefully. The implication is that he's, she's cutting herself up, but we don't ever actually see that. She's just cutting carrots for so long. It's getting the the, the, um, color color out of space. space Yeah. She's just like happily chopping. But it's it's sound design because it switches from clearly carrots to something more gruesome, but you don't really get a look at what it is. And then she finally turns around and her eyes are gone and they're covered in blood like fucking Sam Neill in Event Horizon style. He's like, where's our son? What are we having for dinner? And he goes to the oven, which is smoking. And you're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) She cooked this kid. And uh, it's even creepier than that because when they open the oven, it's just the head. So she's saying yeah. – because you see, you see a trail of blood into their pantry. So the idea is like she cut off her son's head, cooked the head, and then dragged his body into the pantry, which is likely hanging for more meat later. And then it just – it kind of pans out to him staring in horror at his cooked, at his cooked son's Head, it is a terrifying ending. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about uh, during Empty Man how there's all these threats that uh, Cthulhu or Yogg-Sothoth or one of these one of these fellers, Nyarlathotep, is going to come through the veil and in sort of a full force at some point and cause yeah. chaos among the earth. Yeah. But we don't really get yeah. to see it much. And I think the implication at the end of this is that kill Pikmin, leave Pikmin alive. It doesn't matter. Something was coming through the gate because the last thing we see at the art gallery is uh, Pikmin's friend standing in front of a, a portrait of a yeah. sort of strange-looking god painted in a very grotesque, yeah. doré kind yeah. of manner. And uh, and he's saying he's coming. Yeah. He's coming. And yeah. I think the idea is that this madness that he thought... William Thurber's madness that he thought he had contained and he could fight off by forgetting about Pikmin, raising a family, becoming a... Basically, like, I don't know, he runs an art gallery and now he's rich. Um, yeah. Uh, some of it's family money. Um, but the idea that, like, you know, he could go back. If, if I'm domestic enough, <clears throat> if I'm if I'm a, enough of a, a, a subservient, good, functional member of society, I can unknow the fact that Pikmin gave me a spot at the in the abyss 15 years ago. And you can't, actually. And so what's interesting about the story is that they actually have an, a 15-year time jump. Mm-hmm. And between that time, it's not just that he got married and had a kid. Between the time jump, he went to France and he saw horrible shit. And whenever any, and he stopped drinking and anytime anything horrible happens, people are like, basically like, are you just shell-shocked? 
Like, yeah. And he is like, no, actually, I was I saw this horrible thing before um, I even went to France when I was just yeah. a, a young art student. And um, in that way, it's kind of blending the metaphor in a way that I kind of like where it's like you can never unknow things is also similar to like you can never mm-hmm. untrauma yourself. You can all you can do is face that trauma head on. Um, I also took it a little bit as like a new nightmare thing where like. Pikmin, who is kind of, that's the thing is like even though he gets shot and burned, there is an implication, a pretty strong implication that he is not a bad guy and yes. he is trying to do good things. And I like the idea of like New Nightmare, where the whole arc of that movie is that like Freddy is a real dream demon, and by putting him on the screen, that was the way to exert you know to stop Freddy from getting in. It was uh, you know it it. it act as almost like a cork on the bottle by saying hey we're going to have freddy stuff and it's not going to be actually terrorizing uh the dreams and this feels like pikmin was trying to like communicate that like no i paint these to keep them in the art keep them on the canvas as opposed to in the real world and by him dying they are now leaking into the real world because he is not containing them from from the depths of the earth into the paintings uh, anymore yeah that's i mean that's definitely a totally legitimate read on this the way that i read the ending or you know the pikmin scene starts at the same place that pikmin's yeah. not a bad guy he's not a hero to me no. in my interpretation well no i don't think he's a hero oh okay um i mean he's like, just he's just painting these things and he's trying to like explain it to a, another art person like he's like i need to show you what i'm trying to do like yeah i don't think hero like maybe he doesn't even know he's stopping it but like he is essentially doing this because he's compelled to and that is keeping it from like literally coming because the whole thing is like at the end right when it, with him dead, instead of paint, instead of that creature posing for still life in a painting, he's just coming out of the well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and I think that's definitely like a legit way to read it. The my real focus on how the rest of it goes after that point is I think it's literally an interpretation of "Don't shoot the messenger." That like. Pikmin's just like, hey, I don't create the monsters. I don't. This is not a story about. I just, a, I'm a dumb to draw. Yeah, it's not a story like um in Tales from the Hood, the little kid who draws the monsters and they become real. This is yeah. not that kind of story. No. He's like, I'm just, I'm just spreading the word of like what the the world is actually like. I'm doing what art is supposed to do. Art is supposed to reveal more about your world through perspectives. Individual perspectives reveal global perspectives, right? And. To, to me, I read that as a literal, like, almost in a jokey way, don't shoot the messenger, because people are so uncomfortable, yeah. and he's so haunted by this knowledge that he's like, actually, if I kill you, the thing that you said isn't true anymore. And Pikmin's yeah. like, I'm just painting pings. I li- have to live in my head, too. I yeah. just wanted to be friends with you. Like, I wasn't trying to corrupt you. I wasn't even trying to make You're you my paint painting. Paintings. You're my painting pal. And, he's, yeah. and he literally says, Pikmin literally says, as part of, like you said, he says, like, Take me out of the gallery. I just want someone, one person that is my friend that came to me in the graveyard when we were in college together and spent some time with me. Like, I want one friend to, like, I can share my vision with. Like, that's all that matters to him. In some ways, Pikmin is, like, because it's Crispin Glover, you're like, this guy's a demon. Um, yeah. But instead, uh, he's, he's a loser he's, with no friends. Yeah, it's 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 the real evil is out there. Out yeah. in here, it's just a Crispin Glover type. It's just a Crispin Glover type. Yeah, uh, he's like, I, 
sorry, I don't have any more friends since I freaked out on <laughs> David Letterman or whatever the 19th century. <laughs> and I, and I want to really, really quickly here. Um, I want to just note, uh, there's a kind of dumb thing that H.P. Lovecraft did. Did you read about this? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, he was incredibly racist. I don't know if I'd call it dumb. Um, but they... Uh, <laughs> you are really dumb, okay? Wow. Wow. Doing all that racism. Be smart. Um, Get he, woke, H.P. Okay. Lovecraft. So, Pikmin... Also, if you okay. want to hear our thoughts on H.P. Lovecraft's uh, racial views and the way we view it, uh, yeah, it sucked then, it sucked now. You can hear listen to our first Lovecraft episode we talk about it at length. Yeah, so. and so... Uh, these, Not a pass. Cre- the, the primary creature Cancel. of the story is ghouls. Um, oh, yeah. And um, they're, they're essentially weird little monkey guys. The ghoul in this looks great. Um, strange, demonic thing. Um, apparently... Pikmin, he disappears at the end of the short story. He comes back and dreams of unco- unknown Kadath, and I didn't even realize that's what was happening. I haven't read I that one. I don't, yeah. I don't pay attention to names that way, and I only yeah. read unknown Kadath once. And uh, apparently, yeah, he comes back as a ghoul and is like kind of a good dude in yeah. dreams of un- unknown Kadath. Uh, and I think that's I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like as a, as an addendum, but like in this, he's dead. He's a corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in some ways, I would say Lovecraft created the first MCU. <laughs> you would say that. I Yeah, I, I did. In some ways, I would say that um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe owes everything, everything, um, to me one time telling Kevin Feige about how two of my friends are independently friends from me, but they're also my friend. <laughs> oh, I thought they got most of it from Marvel Comics. Do they make comics? Mm-hmm. And toys. And just things to marvel at. Are you saying that they owe me a lot of money? They owe you For my so great idea money. that I have yep. two friends. Let's get it. Let's, produce, let's 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 uh, remaster all of our early episodes in 4K. <laughs> well, okay. Let me explain. John. Okay. I know. And Ben, I know. We have a whole other th- thing. John it's and not Ben, that good. apparently they ride bikes together, but they didn't even know that they bo- that they both knew me. It's crazy. At I the end of every cinematic at, universe. At the end of every hangout, a, a fourth friend comes over and is like, "Can we hang out together next time?" <laughs> and I, we say no, and then they have their own adventure. <laughs> they have their own. No, thank you. Let me see how you do with other friends. <laughs> and then, and then, if like you do well with other friends, you tell us about it, and maybe we'll invite you to our friend hang. But like. First, establish your own friends, dude, before you hang out with us. But just fair warning, Mike, if people like Dennis more than you, we may pull Dennis into our friend group, and then you just got that one movie, Mike. Yeah. You gotta be clear, like, everyone that you make friends with is open for our friend group. Like, it's a full... We're we're gonna be looking at you, we're gonna be looking at all your friends, though. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of your love interests. We don't know. We... We are We're looking kinda, at all of your love interests. <laughs> yeah, looking at all of them. Are you aware of the concept of like gravity? Because what we're going to do is we're going to pull what we think is has enough mass to sustain, we'll say, life into mm-hmm. our friend group. Yes. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. If if you are difficult to work with in any way, we might pull you as a concept into our friend group. We're going to get a different guy to play Dennis. That is just what is going to happen. We're going to get a new dentist. 
We're going to be like, this is Dennis. And we're going to gaslight everyone into think into being like, until everyone agrees that this is the real Dennis. So you not only better have a very interesting time with your friends. If you are a dick to anyone, you're out. Dead. We'll get a new Dennis. And then we'll also sideline your love interest for like 20 years. Yeah. And keep in mind, if Dennis was more interesting when he was 15, yeah. we might hang out with that Dennis instead. <laughs> New Dennis. <laughs> yeah. A lot of Dennises are on the table. So don't think, even if we're like, all right, Dennis, come hang with the friend groups, it's you. <laughs> we'll get a Dennis that knows how to pick up checks. <laughs> We'll get a Dennis that uh, doesn't over-abuse the group text. Like, we're going to get... If we want a Dennis, we're coming for you. But we're going to get the best version of yourself. <laughs> May not be you. Um, all right. Uh, last but certainly not least is the viewing. And I don't have it. Oh, yeah. So the viewing, this was the one that I, I... You know, even though I think the autopsy is my number one, and this is easily my number two of the six that I've seen... When I saw the director list, I didn't even put David Pryor together with The Empty Man because The Empty Man you know, was his first movie and I wasn't like, oh, what else has this guy done? Oh, nothing. Okay, I don't need to remember his name necessarily at the, at the time The Empty Man came out. Um, but when I saw the director's list, I, I think anyone who's a horror movie fan probably was like, wait, Panos Cosmatos is doing an episode? Well, clearly that's going to be the best one. Yeah, unlike, but one. I'll tell you what. If his dad, George P. Cosmatos, did an episode, I would be much less interested. <laughs> I would as well. Um, the director of Tombstone is doing a Cabinet of Curiosity. I, th- I, I think his know. dad. Did, I think his dad did Tombstone. I think it's his only good movie. Yeah, he did. He did Tombstone and and uh, one of the bad Rambo's. Did he do the Jackal? I think he did the Jackal that. that oh, George okay. P. Oh, I mean. Okay, I'm stretching the. Yeah, he didn't do like much. He, he did Jack Black. Oh, he did Leviathan. We like Leviathan. We like yeah, Leviathan. He... he did Gloopies. He did Gloopies. He... Got to give it to him. Uh, he did Cobra, Leviathan. I like Tombstone. Okay, I am well, one of those movies that I've seen twice and both times. So I was like, uh, Cobra's great. I love Cobra. He cuts pizza with scissors, and then I watch Cobra, and I was like, I don't really like Cobra very much. I mean, Rambo two is uh is good. Rambo First Blood Part two is fine. We get to yeah. win this time. <laughs> Tell me, Sarge. Do we get to win uh, this time? Um, yeah. So, yeah, the viewing was obviously the one I was the most excited about. And it delivered so well. It, it has – I think it has the best – well, I don't want to say it has the best cast because we did just talk about the autopsy. But it has a great cast. It has the cast of the most um, – the most, the greatest number of proven – uh, people that we just love, they're all uh, basically... Peter Weller, Eric Andre, it. yeah, it's just... Yeah. And, and I, uh, I think it's actually, so the first thing we talked about, the autopsy, is about uh, an alien invasion, our bodies being co-opted by colonizers in um, the viewing, or sorry, in um, Pikmin's model, we talk about how uh, we have uh, visions of a world beyond and that world can penetrate in various ways. Both, It's not just you're not just seeing through a impermeable veil. Sometimes that veil can be pierced um, And the viewing to me. And we can get into this. The viewing to me is about how people as a species are inherently narcissistic. And carry this hubris about the universe. Like they can actually control the universe if they just 
correlate all of these perfect elements in place, then I can become the fucking emperor. I can become, uh, I can become the Maladib. Um, I can become God of the universe and become the next big, the name that you know, that people will know a thousand years from now, because I'm the one that pierced the veil of knowledge. And then all of those guys get fucking melted. So, uh, let's get into what the, what happens in the viewing. Um, so Peter Weller is a industrialist who made a ton of money off of nuclear power before World War II. He invested before World War II, and then um, the space race, or not space race, excuse me, the nuclear arms race happened with the end of World War II, um, and he made a zillion billion dollars on that. To the point that his life, he's made he's he's made an uh, he's an industrialist on every level. He's an iconoclast. Yeah. He's a collector, and, but but he's also a bit of a recluse. Like he likes to touch and observe culture from afar and control culture from afar. But he's he's in the back. A hundred percent. If he existed in our real world, he's the guy who's buying that Wu Tang album. Yes. Yes. He's 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 a man of uh, every interest. I actually love that. I love that detail where they're asking, like, what's this music? And he's like, oh, actually, I paid off the composer who made that the music. He now only makes music for me and he only makes music for this house. Yeah. He's exhibiting wealth in a way that's almost impossible to understand. Yeah. Right. It's the sort of thing that he's just focused and focused and focused on every single detail being controlled being in his element. I just love the idea that this guy is so rich. He literally has not only hired a famous composer, but to, he hires different composers to exclusively make soundtracks to each of his homes. So they all have a different vibe. And like, so you can't buy this music. This is the home's music. Like that is a level of rich that like goes beyond, I think even the concept of like, I'm going to buy the one Wu-Tang album and only hear it because, like, it is exclusive to a house, not... He's a home composer, which is, yeah, like, a, um, yeah. that's, like, a Medici level of wealth. Like, that's yeah. not, hey, um, my dad left me a trust fund wealth. That's, like, hey, I invested in the idea of dogs. They were like, I was like, you know, see all those. It's like medieval. It's medieval sheet? king shit, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The one comedian in town lives at my castle, and I make him tell me jokes whenever I want. Like, you can't go see the jester. I own the jester. Yeah, but you um, have to keep escalating that those things, right? Because, like, okay, so at first, private theaters that was like the coolest thing in the world, and then now it's like for you know. A normal amount of money you can get a home projector and a and a couch and you can get a blank wall and like you know you can go like it used to be something that you needed to have an inordinate amount of wealth to have like a home projector set up and now it's like it's like i have two or three friends with really awesome home projector setups and it's awesome to sit and watch but like i'm not friends with anybody with a 12 uh room mansion uh who uh invented whiteout or whatever <laughs> Uh. Yeah. So anyway, so he people are getting these these mysterious invites to attend the viewing and there's different scientific people or art critics or geologists. Again, then I you you called this right at the beginning, that idea of like I'm going to get all of the finest minds in the world or like each people that I have some respect or something for, and I'm going to um I am going to have them explain my collection 
to me or give their thoughts and like kind of have like a a court of uh of like some sort of like greek court of like philosophers discuss from different perspectives what this rock is uh and the cast is all around great yeah and an interesting thing here is that while he is indulging in the whiskey and the the fancy whiskey that you know survived hiroshima and like he's the magic cocaine yeah the magic cocaine that doesn't make you anxious at all and the perfect cigarettes and Mm -hmm. like um everyone has their own custom cocktail when they come to the party that's perfectly calibrated for just them because he wants to he wants to blow their minds he is also taking these custom drug cocktails because he basically has like a drug composer uh played by sofia botella um dr zara um and she is giving this these custom experiences and what's very interesting about this whole thing is that uh panos is sober panos uh is an alcoholic and stopped drinking uh at some point um and uh i think it was after his dad's death he was basically in an interview he was like after his dad's death i realized i was basically drinking entire days away and and he's i I believe now he's he's at least sober from booze um and the idea of this first i'm not even gonna say half the first two-thirds of this thing yeah is entirely about this indulgence and the specificity of what they're taking yeah this is what this to... gun is like it's yeah. all of these like everything is very specific and everything yes. is meant to impress you peter weller's character is trying to impress yeah. all of these people that he finds at least oppressive enough to want to show him his fine yeah and, and part of that impression is he's trying to build pl- pliability in these people. He's trying to make them not only open up their minds to this experience that they're going to have in the obelisk chamber, um, but they're uh, also going to... Um, he's he, he wants them to follow his instructions exactly. He doesn't want anybody to come in as a, as a gross cynic. He's trying to control the human mind the way that he has controlled his perfect little paradise, paradisical home and the way that he perfectly controls his drug intake with these strange regular injections. Mm-hmm. And um, this re- practical application of drugs, he thinks this mission will be successful if everyone is under his sway and everyone is the right level of loose and pliable. And viewing like alcohol and drugs as a means of control is like, I think like a pretty interesting um, play off of these movies about whining and dining and the rich people have all this, all this wealth. Like the idea that like every single thing down to the chemicals you're being fed is a means of control is fascinating when you get to the end and the fact that it doesn't work. <laughs> it no. doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, and also, I mean, well, it, the whole thing is is feels like it's shot on 16 millimeter. I couldn't really find out any of the too much of the technical specs, but it's like it's um I the aspect ratio is uh 2 to 1 as opposed to like 1.75 or 2.35 or whatever. So, it really feels like a 70s or 80s movie it 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 feels like it was shot on film like it like a lot of the stuff that panos does it has a lot of overall texture that kind of matches the overall experience that he as the director who's trying to calibrate a very specific experience is giving you everything is these beautiful analog lights there's no digital anything in this this is um 
the car, the lights, the interior lights in the car and that beautiful car dashboard that lights up yep. with the, the flickering like little DJ lights. Like all of this is analog. Now these are LEDs. These are, these are, these perfectly cal. It reminds me of like old record players and they have that beautiful like light up green display. Nothing beats that. That feeling when you're just like you flick, you hit the hard click of that 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 power button, and then like the the analog comes to life. It's that experience for the entire movie. It's this textural, feely kind of analog 1979 vibe. Yeah, yeah, I it's it's great. And so eventually, though, Peter Weller's like, "I've come for you to a viewing. Come to the obelisk chain chamber." And he's like, you know, putting all the different rules in place: no smoking, no touching, like you know, all the sort of things. And they they stand equidistant around this circle where there's a where there's a comet. And he starts describing where he believes this like sp- well, comet might not the right word, but where this asteroid, this space rock, has come. And they're all kind of like debating it a little bit. And they're like, you know, part of it, part of them is like, oh, I see it's out of this world. And uh, Steve Agee's characters like, you guys are crazy. It's just the drugs. <laughs> like, it's just a fucking rock. Uh, and in this scene, I love Eric Andre is kind of who did a lot of drugs. Um, his character <laughs> um, walks up and, is, and lights a cigarette and looks closer at it and breathes smoke and Peter Weller's like, I thought I told you not to smoke in this room. He's like, sorry, and he backs away. But then the rock ingests all of the, like, sucks in all of the cigarette smoke. And after, like, a lot of debating about what this is. Oh, that's from the J, actually. Because he puts the cigarette out, and then he gets too close oh, yeah, with, the, yeah. with the joint. <laughs> oh, he's, yeah. And so the thing gets a little, the thing gets high. The thing yeah. uh, uh, takes a, gets a shotgun hit from the J. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, like things start oozing out in it and people start kind of freaking out. Right. Like, uh, Charlene, who's, whose character is like head explodes almost immediately. The Okay. So, um, guy, which is played by Steve Agee, his head explodes. Yeah. I can actually kind of like, I have a quick theory here on the, their fates and how it ties in with like yeah. what they are. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Guy is too rigid. He keeps yeah. making sarcastic quips. He's a fiction writer. Yes. And he's and he's just like, yeah, I love cocaine. Yeah, I love whiskey. Just like yeah. But like at the end of all of that, all that pliability, all of that that control, he's as he's not in control. He's a human being. He has his own thing. This these people weren't brainwashed over the course of months. They he wanted to uh orchestrate this perfect night, and this man is still too rigid. And because he's too rigid, his head explodes in a Scanners-esque explosion. Yeah. yeah. And then the other two people, two of the people, Targ and Dr. Zara, um, they melt. And my mm-hmm. my impression there is that they're too impressionable. Like, yeah. that they are just, like... Well, the ooze, the the ooze actually gets into Dr. Zara and, like, yeah. consumes her. Yes. And then we get to Lionel, uh, which is... Uh, uh, um, Peter Weller, uh, Lionel, uh, not, I have a whole thing here, but like, uh, he always says, I, I, I secured this at the utmost difficulty at the greatest expense. You know, he always talks about how much work it was to get this thing here. Um, He's like John Hammond, but never shuts the fuck up. Yes. No expense. Yes. Like, and, spared no expense, and here's the receipts. <laughs> yeah, and it's the no. rich understand. This is actually kind of an interesting corollary to Jurassic Park, I think. 
I, I think that's a good. I think that's a good poll. Um, the rich understand the world as things they own, will own, or did own, um, and the unpossessable just breaks their brain. Uh, it's, yeah. it's why Elon Musk um, really, really went uh, crazy when uh, his wife left him um, and um, dated which, which uh, Chelsea wife? Manning. Um, when Grimes left Elon Musk, he realized that this was the one thing that he couldn't buy. Like that he thought for a period of time he could rent this, 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 the, her, her courtship. But like, ultimately, like they had too toxic of a relationship and she was like, I'm out of here. And like the unpossessable can be as grounded as like this human being no longer wants to spend time with you or the cosmic. And in this sense, it's the cosmic. He thought just because he made an obelisk chamber and he put it in the perfect position and he, he has the right uh, underlights, uh, these orange gold underlights and he splashes everyone with these gold lights to show his opulence and his wealth. He thought that he could um, possess something that was inherently unpossessable. And it literally gobbles him up as goop mm-hmm. and takes him in and it possesses him. Like it it owns him. Yeah, He's like it, a cosmic it, co- it covers his entire body and turns into this wonderful like claymation alien monster. It's so um, cool looking. And then starts leaving. So, and Eric Andre and Charlene Yee's character, like, they grab the gun. They shoot it. They're trying to figure out because they, they can't find the doorknobs because it's such a futuristic 70s thing. And they finally escape. And they're like, holy shit, was that real? Was that crazy? And they, like, get in a car and they drive away. And eventually you see the the monster go through a sewer pipe. And in this fantastic ending shot, which, like I said, if it was a – if it was a different movie and not a uh, entry of, of Cabinet of Curiosities, that would be like – that would be the end of Act 1, right? And then Act 2 is like he, the monster heading towards the city because there's this amazing model of L.A., mm-hmm. right? Like just fantastic and him emerging from the sewer grates to pan up and see like the city that he's slowly claymation walking towards. Uh, and it fucking rules so hard. It's so yeah. good. It's so great. And I think I think there's a few small details here that Panos threw in that like he just couldn't help uh with, which is there with the AK the gold AK forty seven comes yep. in the wall. Peter Weller does this power move where he indicates to um it and he says, Hector has an interesting history with that weapon or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um uh and Hector's then, like the security guard who lets him out at the end too. Yeah, and then Hector is like he's clearly having a little bit of an internal panic and he's like about to tell what seems to be a very traumatic story about his, his life. And then Peter Weller just steps in and he's like, by putting it on the wall, we, um, we disempower the weapon and we turn it into a piece of art that can be controlled on the wall. But that, that thing is not dissimilar to the rock. It's not, it's, yeah. it, it has a great degree of control over Hector. And then the moment happens where Hector's like, fuck it. And Hector picks up the yeah. gun again. He goes <laughs> yeah. in the room to start shooting this, glo- this globby thing. And it zaps him. Like, yeah. uh, I, I can't come up with a symbolic, um, reason for a man being electrocuted. He found it shocking. I don't know. Um, but it, well, it it's, it's, of- it's like, it's, it's more clear cut violence being dispelled from like, you shoot, you shoot me with a gun, I shoot you with a, a space laser yeah. blast. Yeah. yeah. It, it works in that, that regard where it's just like, oh, like this is how you <laughs> want to play. Okay. Um, and Dr. Dr. Zara has this traumatic history with working for, um, mm-hmm. 
Um, fuck's his name? The dictator from the 80s, the Libyan guy. Oh, um, uh, Gaddafi. Yeah, she worked for Gaddafi and has all these like strange stories about him. Like, yeah. There's all these a million le- weird little details about how uh, Lionel gathered these people up and gave them a static home but he is their god well and he now controls their story and their narrative like she doesn't say hey here's the time i worked for Gaddafi." he introduces her as part of the collection and shares her history the way you would an object right like this painting was owned by the french resistance and the nazis captured it and then it fell into my possession that's how he describes the humans that that work for him too right she was a drug dealer for libyan dictator you know gaddafi and then i went on a trip like he's describing them like art pieces and how they acquired them exactly exactly are there all their possessions to him he collects people and he collects everything else why couldn't he collect an alien and i I love that um, they they make a reference to him making money off of uranium before World War II. And I feel like that is like, you know, a if we're talking about cosmic horror, I talked yeah. about how this, this is a sequel has, to Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> so talking about like there's this man has hubris. Lionel has hubris towards the entire cosmos. He wants to possess the impossessable. And actually, the cosmos says, no, I own you. I'm, and actually, I'm going to jockey your body around like a weird fucking puppet for a while. Kind of similar to the autopsy. Like, And then eventually, there's not going to be much left to you. And I'll probably move on to something new that entices me. Um, and similar to that, I think it's very interesting. Because like a equivalent... A cosmic horror equivalent, I think, that we have in our real world today is the fact that we dropped nuclear weapons on Japan during World War II. Not you and me. Um, yeah. But the United States. But the good guys. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't have done it, but they, it happened. Peter, it's I don't bad. know if you know this, but we did. it was a good thing we did it. Did you know oh, I, I school? Know it's actually great. <laughs> we, we, we I won. I assumed the hundreds of thousands Could not, was bad. I don't um, know. Well, no. We, they would have killed millions of us if we hadn't done it. That's what I learned in school. Yeah, did you it is amazing how much how much colonialism just got Jesus pa- Christ. packaged down? But it's like when you they, read when you read any context of anything, you were taught like you're like, holy shit! <laughs> like this is wrong. not we were we were we are the best. again so much of uh, college even college history or like learning about current events from not your public education is like uh, it's so much of the are we the baddies? Are we yes. the baddies? Absolutely, and that was a. Um, I mean, I think the sort of cliche about nuclear weapons is that it's a Pandora's box thing, right? Um, as soon as we dropped one, every single country on the planet was at least humoring um, starting a nuclear arms program. And many of them successfully got to it within 10 years. I think I think the Soviets got a functional one in 54. I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. Um, but the, like... Now we live in a world that's like we just at any given moment, our entire existence could be wiped out by a few guys pressing buttons, right? Like, yeah, it, we 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 we've learned to post Cold War to kind of accept that as a a yeah. um, sublimating horror of existence. Yeah, um, but like that is that is cosmic horror. The idea that this yeah. thing that we barely we 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 barely can control. Like, yeah, literally separating book. separating the molecules of our uh, existence yes. into, a, into a terror. Yeah, and we're like, um, 
We can power our TVs with it, and I can make about 200,000 people disappear with it. Um, other than that, I, I think we're good. Yeah. We don't have to explore any other options. <laughs> Peter, one recommendation if you do worry about that, get a desk. Another oh, okay. great thing I was taught in school, get under that bad boy. And yeah. you will be, I mean, hair a little must up? Yup. <laughs> yeah, are we going to get our hair must? Yeah, you I'm betcha. not gonna. I'm not gonna say you're gonna be like this is fine. I'm going back about my life, but it'll, as I understand it, generally protect you. So you're saying I should bring my hair stuff with me under the desk? I'm because saying you should I will duck. be under the desk, and I can unmuss my hair with. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's almost impossible not to muss it up because yeah. you're gonna duck and you're gonna cover. If you just duck, yes, the mussing occurs at the cover stage. So if you duck only, there is a chance you're gonna be unmussed. But if you want the full effect, the full protection from the nuclear explosion, what you need to do is also cover, and that's where the must happens. They might as well change the, the, the phrase to must is a must. Must a must if you want to live. <laughs> Bust a nut if you want to continue as must is a must if you want to continue as thus. And I'm saying bust a nut like uh, if you want to live to crack more peanuts. Yeah. You have to muss your hair a little bit. So bust a nut if you want to muss your must. Is it really living? It's, it's if better you're not than duck and cover, nuts. I think. Yeah, I think it's easier to remember, and uh, uh, and also may have introduced rhyming and the concept of rap earlier to mm-hmm. children. The Sugar more, Hill more Gang, lyrics. I think. Yeah, their first rap was a uh, yeah. must Gus. <laughs> yeah, my name is Gus. Um, yeah, so viewing is good. Um, it's good. The viewing is good, but yeah, the but yeah. How much do you? Horror, you and I don't like cosmic horror that we live with every day, and we try to pretend it doesn't exist. And I feel like it's fascinating that that's operating in the background. But I think all of us can understand the the idea that rich people just want to own everything. And I love the idea yeah. of this guy coming across just the right rock that does not want to be owned. <laughs> I like that one of the ways I used to get uh, clever dick jokes is now a constant reminder that uh, rich people like to own everything. So I get it. So I have a daily reminder of it. It's nice. Good to understand my place in the uh, proverbial pecking order, if you will. Also, I, I've i been very tempted between this and obviously our rewatch of Mandy for the show. is like, do I have to rewatch Beyond the Black Rainbow? Because I didn't really like it that much. And would I, I like it? I like two-thirds of it. And then I, I like that. I like the last sucks. Oh, interesting. I like the last third is my memory of like it kind of got less boring and now there's some interesting weirdness going on, but I didn't think it added up to anything. I love I love the dreamy like what like what is happening kind of vibe of the first two thirds. It's slow, but it's like it's uh, medit it's like meditative, like um hypnotic is the word I'm looking for. Um it's hypnotic. And then the third act they're just like she does a bunch of gloopy psychic effects because a member of the team was like, I want to make some heads pop. Sure. I like the gloopy psychic effects, yeah. but uh, I usually be, do. I didn't like it. Might be worth a rewatch. Cause I feel like I was left a little cold by it. Um, and I don't know. I like these two quite a bit. So this and Mandy, obviously uh, four or five. I definitely should revisit it. It's been 15 years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. That's the cabinet of curiosities. Again, uh, I think the other three episodes, that I've seen are very worthwhile as well. I would recommend them, and I'm excited to, to catch the last two here at this year's Spooktober. Uh, maybe if we're really lucky, they'll have a surprise second season that drops beforehand as well. Uh, and Peter, next week, 
this is we're with it's the end. It's the end of uh of of Spring Forward Lovecraft with probably the one that I've been most excited to do. I've loved everything we've covered, but uh this was Peter, was this your favorite movie? I'm trying to remember what uh what our lists were for 2018. It's up there. I think it was your favorite movie of 2018. I think it was like my third or fourth. Uh, And that is Alex Garland's uh, Annihilation, uh, which is a just a fucking I cannot wait to watch it. And I haven't rewatched it. I watched it twice the year it came out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've read now the whole Southern Reach trilogy. And even though like that is absolutely unnecessary to enjoy the movie, the movie actually is based just on the first book and he very specifically did not read the other two books and even then it kind of takes a lot of the concepts and does its own thing with it uh i fucking loved that southern reach trilogy like i am still thinking about it as i move on to my next read and uh so i have and i haven't i haven't rewatched annihilation now with so much of like that kind of world in my hand so i am i'm not only excited to rewatch annihilation i am so excited to finally cover it on this show as well yeah yeah i've read um the first book and i'm almost done with the second book i probably will not finish all three before we're done reading but it, yeah it's not it's not required i just was looking for a good excuse to finally crack crack the area yeah i bought it like four four years ago right yeah i bought it probably when when you did and I, it's been sitting on my shelf it, looking very pretty um, it is 600 pages and it's like small print. It's funny because the other book I'm reading I went back to uh, is the Stephen King uh, Wolves of the Kala or whatever. And uh, that book is also 600 pages and the letters are about five times as big. <laughs> I'm breezing through that one. Stephen wants you to feel smart. Like I read 50 yeah. pages today. Yeah. It's just it's like my kids like kids books with a big picture in the middle and eight words. Uh Yeah. So yeah, next week, Annihilation, then what we're doing for May, we haven't decided, I don't think yet. So, The Return of Musical May? Something we else? We may. Find out. We yeah. may tell you next week if we remember to come up with a theme. Uh, good night. to watch. 
you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs) Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>